Progressive presents an interview with your upstairs neighbor. Hi, I'm Tia. The upstairs-downstairs neighbor dynamic is so special. We have our own language. Like when I scream at my mom on the phone, the people downstairs bang on the ceiling to show their support. The nighttime's the best time to rearrange furniture. I call it midnight feng shui. And if I sleep through my alarm in the morning, they bang on my door to wake me. So thoughtful. Progressive can't save you from your upstairs neighbor, but we can save you money when you bundle renters and auto insurance with us. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Bundle discount not available in all states or situations. You are listening to a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Capital Calculus, the show which focuses on the intersection of politics and economics, something that is critical in democracies like India. especially in influencing what the little guy gets or does not get every week this show will explore this intersection to try and give you a fresh perspective on the week that was i am your host anil padmanabhan last week the international monetary fund released its world economic outlook the forecast for 2020 was grim the world economy will contract by 4.4% national economies much more india for example is projected to contract by 10.3% in short 2020 will be like a gap year for the world economy worse the imf believes the economic fallout would be lasting in some instances the scarring could be permanent for emerging markets like india this could be devastating turning the clock back on poverty alleviation It is not just the army of new poor we need to worry about. Its existing inequalities will worsen, not because the haves gained. Instead, the have-nots lost so much more. How should the governments respond? To answer this and more, I spoke to Jahangir Aziz. He is the head of emerging markets at J.P. Morgan in New York. I began by asking him about his thoughts on the IMF projections for 2020. So those number is broadly in line with uh, what we have. We have about minus 4.1, uh, and the reason being that we do not cover all the countries that the IMF can, uh, covers. So, for example, we don't cover large parts of sub-Saharan Africa or what are called frontier countries. Uh, so that's the reason it's somewhat different. But it's minus 4.1. We more or less have the same for 2021, and we also have what is I think important for people to understand is that the level of GDP. Even by the end of 2021, will be about four five percentage points lower than what was envisaged, let's say, in January of this year. So, Jangir, what started out as a full-blown health crisis is now yeah. probably the worst economic shock we have seen. Yeah. So, look, you know that you know at the end of the day, as you said, it's a it's a it's a health crisis. It's a public health problem. It's a public health crisis. and if you aren't able to stop that from uh spreading which we haven't been able to every time we've started to uh you know open up the economy and increase mobility infection has come back and except for a handful of countries in north asia no one really has been able to bring down uh the infection rate and as long as we can't do that uh then clearly people can't participate in the economy and you know services sector which has been the one that has been disproportionately damaged by the uh, crisis will continue to lag in its recovery 
And, you know, until unless we really are able to bring down the infection, whether it's by a vaccine or whether it's by improved public health, uh, I really don't think that we can see uh, full recovery. Uh, so all of us are looking at an incomplete recovery, even by the end of 2021. So, Jangir, isn't there a risk that this economic crisis can now snowball into a financial sector crisis and uh, become an even bigger right. Challenge. No, I mean, look, I mean, absolutely. I mean, that is a concern and that's a concern not just in uh, emerging markets like India and Brazil and others, but it's also a concern in Europe and, uh, and, and the US and in developing market countries. And, there, and the concern clearly is that this, if you prolong this income loss, right, whether it's in the uh, households or whether it's in SMEs or whether it's even in corporates, if you prolong this income loss, there will be non-performing loans that will form. And even if the uh, central banks, RBI in our case, and you know, uh, other, other banks and uh, other central banks elsewhere in the world, even if they extend forbearance, there will still be the, the, that, that they will still have problems with repayment of loans. You just can, you, you're just postponing it. You aren't really addressing it. And with damaged balance sheets, as you and I know, uh, if you, especially in emerging market countries, it takes a very, very long time for an economy to recover from a damaged balance sheet. Uh, so clearly, that's the big risk. And this is even if we do get a vaccine, right? You know, you get a vaccine, let's say, in uh, the first quarter of 2021, uh, by any stretch of the imagination, it's going to take at least 2022 before the vaccine can be deployed on a vast majority of the population. So, Jangir, uh, in short, this is a gap year for the world economy. What do you think sure. will be the fallout? So, there's several fallout. Let's start with the one that you talked about, which is, you know, does this snowball into a financial crisis? And if you look at the manner in which central banks, you know, elsewhere, it's not in India, but central banks elsewhere, and more importantly, the fiscal authorities are reacting. If you look at the fiscal authorities' strategy, and if you look at, you know, where they are focusing their attention, they're focusing the attention on income support. What they're trying to do is to provide income to people who are losing income, whether it's you know, households or corporates, doesn't really matter, losing income such that they, their balance sheet is not damaged. The only country that is actually providing non-income support or through spending, let's say infrastructure, and it is actually succeeding, it's in China. And that's because China actually did bring down and control and have controlled the virus spread. So if the virus is under control, you can provide support to the economy by uh, spending. But if you if a virus is not under control, spending doesn't work and you have to fall back on income support. So I think the first fallout of this is exactly what you said. Do does this snowball into a financial crisis? Because if it does, then we are looking at a much more extended period of recovery. And I think critical to preventing that from happening is massive amounts of income support. And unfortunately, in India, uh, the fiscal authorities think otherwise. So I think that clearly is the first risk, which is that, you know, uh, does this snowball into a financial crisis? Scarring of the economy is only one part of the problem. The long-term social impact is a bigger concern. Reversal of the gains in the fight against poverty is one. So is the likely worsening of inequality. I asked Jahangir about his thoughts. 
the concern ebbs, I mean, comes from, from the second problem of the land of financial crisis, which is that does, the, does this pandemic have, you know, permanent shock to the economy? Does, is this, is this pandemic going to permanently damage certain sectors so that potential growth or medium term growth is actually damaged? And look, if you have a six, nine month of income, you know, decline and that income decline, you know, is recovered in the next six, nine months time, then the damage to these things are not that permanent you will have got a very sharp uh, increase in poverty levels, inequality, uh, but then, you know, you can recover out of it. But if it's a permanent shock, if it's a medium-term shock, if let's say India loses one and a half, two percentage points of GDP in, uh, you know, in medium-term growth, and medium-term, I mean, you know, uh, two, three, four years growth, uh, then that translates into a very large increase in poverty, it will, it will translate into a very large increase in, in, in inequality. And, you know, uh, uh, you know, that's just the direct impact. Then there is the indirect impact. Indirect impact is that, as we spoke about, it, you know, um, this um, crisis uh, is disproportionately has affected uh, the services sector. And if you look at services sector employment, that is also disproportionately more, has more women in it than, than, than male uh, workers. And so it is not just that the impact is just going to be on income inequality or income or poverty going up, but it will also have disproportionately affect employment, you know, based on uh, gender, gender differences in employment will also be there. So, Jangi, following up on that, basically, which means public policy will now have a new challenge. You know, poverty was on the wane for the last, say, right. two decades. Now it's coming yep. back up. And this inequality is very different from the normal inequality because it's not that the haves have done extra well, it's that the have-nots have done really, really badly. Absolutely. You know? So, how does a public policy recalibrate in such circumstances? Look, as I said, I mean, the first thing that the public policy needs to do is to prevent that from happening or at least minimizing that damage. And minimizing that damage in this case requires and i'm you know i'm going to be sounding like a broken record Anil, but this re this requires massive quantities of income support you're not going to ask questions what will people do with the money no there is not you know th that time has gone away we need to basically provide support and even if they do not spend that and even if they save that what you really need is to ensure that their balance sheets and you know we don't think about uh, low-income low income workers or low-income households in terms of balance sheets. We only think of balance sheets about corporates and high net worth individuals and, uh, and SMEs. But balance sheet impact is exactly the same, uh, whether you're, you're earning you know, at the lower end of the in, in income bracket or on the higher end of the income bracket. It doesn't really matter. And balance sheet effect is something that, the, that public policy needs to address now in order to minimize the, the damage. And unfortunately, uh, that seems to have, you know, not really uh, changed um, our, our fiscal authorities' minds that they need to focus on that. They still, still seem to think that, you know, they can basically do infrastructure and spend their way out of this. It doesn't work that way. In fact, they're not spending very much, but, you know, uh, whatever little they're spending, it's on infrastructure and things like that. It doesn't work. At, this, this crisis is very different, as we were all talking about it. 
This is not an economic crisis. This is not something that was created by the standard EM crises, you know, overheating of the economy, uh, bad investments. That's the way in which invest, in emerging market countries when, uh, usually go into crisis. And we know how to solve that. This is not one of them. This is a pure public health shock that is translated into a pure economic shock. And the public and the response of policy needs to be different. Uh, so I think the first step that needs to be done, and, you know, uh, it's high time, you know, I mean, we've already spent six, nine months not doing it, is to provide income support to, to prevent that very problem that could happen. Yangir, you are touching on a very interesting point that there is no playbook to fall back upon. Guess right. everything has to be, you know, like uh, on the fly or, exactly. you know, like uh, out of the box. But uh, doesn't this introduce a different kind of risk? Because there is no playbook, you don't know the chance of success or failure. So it may succeed, sure. but equally likely or more that it may fail. True, but we do know that, you know, in countries, even in the last six, nine months, right? In countries where the where government spending has focused on income support, the outcome has been very different from that of countries where the focus has not been on income support. And I'll give you one example. You know, example that, you know, you know, which is, you know, pretty much peer-to-peer, apples-to-apples are, uh, uh, example, Brazil versus India. You know, pretty much similar-sized economy, you know, similarly structured, uh, you know, both part of the, you know, BRICS world. Um, and, you know, both of them uh, have, you know, fiscal policy is at the heart of their uh, weakness. Uh, as you know, maybe it's even more so in Brazil than in India. That that is where all the nervousness, all the fears are, is on what to do with fiscal policy. And if you look at uh, what Brazil has done, Brazil's fiscal deficit is going to move from around 7% of GDP last year to 17% of GDP this year. And a large part of that is, like India, a decline in tax revenue. But a significant portion of that, almost eight, nine percentage points of that, is increased spending, of which four and a half, five percentage points of GDP is just pure income support to, you know, what is called the Bolsa Familia, uh, which is essentially our uh, definition of BPL families. And if you look at that, and if you look at where India and Brazil stood, let's say, in the second quarter in terms of infection rate, Brazil's infection was significantly higher than India's infection rate. Brazil's infection rate, you know, India's infection rate now has risen to the level of Brazil's infection rate. But if you look at the damage that was done in the second quarter of calendar year 20, of 2021, India's GDP, you know, fell twice as much as that of Brazil's. And if you look at, you know, uh, people's forecast of what has happened to Brazil's economy in 2021, you know, Brazil's economy will be negative. But People have increasingly upped that, upped that growth forecast, whereas people have progressively reduced the growth forecast for India. Uh, so I think it, even now, even though we don't have a playbook, I think first principles tell, tell us that this is what we should be doing. And what we do know is that at least in the six, nine months of experience that we have, that first principle actually delivers the outcome that we think it should. And as I said, you know, Brazil and India are two contrasting examples of economies that follow two different paths, 
and you know in one part we do see better outcomes taking place and you know it's it's not it's not that the market is not nervous about brussels fiscal policy it is very nervous about in the up fiscal up brussels fiscal policy so it's nothing to do with you know that brussels has a lower uh, you know uh, you know has lower debt and things like that it doesn't uh, so that's so i think we have to trust the first principles and instincts and go with that yeah it's very interesting so you are suggesting that we should not worry about the karma of uh, fiscal largess at this point of time i think that so i'm suggesting the following i'm saying that by saving 2 3 4 percentage points of gdp in 2020 we might have just damaged the medium term growth for 21 22 23 24 i don't know how long and the benefit that you get from not doing the 4 3 4 5 percentage points of additional fiscal uh, spending that we are not willing to do that benefit really hasn't given us anything we are still going to get a minus 10 growth rate this year we are going to lose medium term growth most likely and what the, what has this move towards being you know the steward of fiscal rectitude given to given us not nothing much so you know our exchange rate has remained probably the most supported compared to the other emerging market countries uh but that we do know has not been caused by uh you know fiscal discipline that we know has been caused by the fact that we've had the sudden spurt of capital flows that have come in india with a minus 10% growth rate you know has a 3.5% of current account surplus that's not really the way you should be taking the economy you should be you know we should be we can we have lived with you know Minus two percent of of current account deficit easily, and what we are saying essentially is that three and a half percent of current account surplus to where we should be minus two, that five and a half percentage points of space that has been provided to us should be used for increasing fiscal deficit, and by not doing so, I think what we are doing is we are probably risking medium term growth. So, Jangir, you have worked in uh, finance ministry. in the office of the economic advisor so if you were asked to advise this finance minister one thing she should look at what would it would be income support you have you have you have the we have we have you know spent enormous amount of money setting up the janthan yojanas the mudra banks with the aadhar back use it i have said we have you know 3 and 1/2% of capital of current account surplus we shouldn't have that we have significant amount of fiscal space we are just not looking at it we seem to be completely obsessing with our debt numbers and what the rating agencies says and by the way the rating agencies have shown that they care much more about medium term growth than about fiscal fiscal deficit in 2020 21 that's it i mean there this is this, there is no magic in this there is only one way out which is you just give blindly income support you don't ask questions you don't ask where it's going to be used up whether it's going to leak into this or 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 leak into that whether people are going to save it not save it you just give income support so that when the recovery starts when we do get a vaccine when the recovery can start let's say in 2022 then we are not hamstrung by households with damaged balance sheets 
SMEs with damaged balance sheets and corporates with damaged balance sheets. That's and that is only basically the playbook. As I said, there are not there are not you know five things or six things to do in this crisis. There is this one thing to do: just give income support. You heard Jangir. The political economy of government spending is the key, as he points out. Public policy has to fund bigger social safety nets. Countries can't afford to go by the old playbook, in which the dharma was to cut the coat according to the cloth. They have to think out of the box, be fiscally daring, and provide income support. It is the key to protecting demand. Help rebuild devastated household budgets, and of course, it will also underwrite a growth revival. It will also stave off potential social unrest. Equally important. The message then is clear. It is time to act. Time for another stimulus. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Do share your feedback and ideas. You can reach me on Twitter at Capital Calculus or on Facebook and Instagram at HT Smartcast. I'll be back next week with a new episode of Capital Calculus. Till then, stay safe. This was a Mint production brought to you by HT Smartcast. HT Smartcast. I'm Annie Apple, and I'm here to invite you to come and listen to my new podcast series, Raising April. It's the most intimate sports-related conversations you will hear. Each week, we explore the journeys of some of your favorite NFL players through the eyes of those that know them best. From Joe Burrow, DeAndre Hopkins, Miles Garrett, Ezekiel Elliott, Nick and Joey Boza, just to name a few. With exclusive insights and information, we leave no stone unturned. Subscribe now to Raising a Pro on your favorite podcast app.